China has a quarter of the world's Alzheimer's patients. With the country's gray population growing rapidly, the number of patients will likely increase fourfold by 2050. Meet the patients, their families and caregivers, and discover the anxiety, struggle and misconceptions behind one of the biggest problems of an aging society in our documentary, Aging in China, Living with Alzheimer's, on CGTN Radio. For podcast listeners, search The Top Story and find the program on all popular podcast apps on September the 21st, the 30th World Alzheimer's Day. Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, boiling point as extreme weather strikes across the globe. Are climate catastrophes the new normal? From floods in Libya and China to drought in Sri Lanka, not to mention heat waves and wildfires across much of Europe and North America, the summer of 2023 has highlighted the devastating impact of climate change like never before. It prompted UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to declare we're no longer talking about global warming, but global boiling. So what can be done if these climate catastrophes are not to become the new normal? With me now is Nicholas Hagelberg, the Global Coordinator for Climate Change at the United Nations Environment Programme. July was likely the hottest the Earth has seen for about, I think, 120,000 years. Um, leading the UN Secretary General, as we heard there, to say that we've passed this era of global warming and that we're talking about global boiling. Is that why this summer has seen such weather extremes? What we're seeing now is a combination of two parts. So one is the ever-growing uh, concentration of greenhouse gases uh, in our atmosphere. And then it's, uh, we have just shifted from La Nina uh, event that has been cooling the Pacific Ocean towards uh, El Nino that started more or less in, in May. And uh, that one is now causing the Pacific Ocean to increase in, in temperature. And that those two events together has now led to the uh, warmest uh, July on, on record. So let's talk about the science behind the, the ferocity in temperatures that, that, that we've been seeing, that we've been feeling. Is there any hope of reversing what seems to be a climate catastrophe? So the kind of situation as we see it now with, uh, with these events across uh, the world from, uh, from China to, to Brazil and, and US and, and Europe, we are likely to continue to see this in the foreseeable future. The good news is that we still have the opportunity if and when we will uh, reduce the, the greenhouse gas emissions, then the uh, climate can stabilize into a new normal, which will not be too far from the climate that we, our human society has got used to and, and that we have built up around. I want to talk about the, the, the net zero goals um, and this goal of 1.5 degrees. Really, is that really just wishful thinking now because you know nearly two years ago a UNEP report said there was no credible pathway to 1.5 degrees in place. I wonder if anything has really changed. 
Well, so although it's still mathematically possible to, to uh, keep the 1.5 degree uh, alive, uh, emissions are still increasing, global emissions that is, and it's only about 35 countries that have uh, shifted uh, and is on a, a stable pathway towards decreasing emissions. We do have a lot of countries that are still uh, increasing their emissions and they have not even stagnated. So it does not look too good for 1.5 degree and uh, even two degree, we have to really pull up our socks to, to, to deliver on that. But the solutions are available. So all the way from uh, renewable energy to uh, electric mobility, to changes in diets, to being more material efficient, the opportunities are right in front of us. We just need major political will, uh, action from all individuals from private sector to take this forward, and it can still be done. Well, what impact would it have on the world if, if we don't reach that, if it's two degrees, if it's more? Well, so there was a few years ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with its report about the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees. So at 1.5 degree global average warming, we are likely to lose about 50% of coral reefs. At 2 degrees, it's virtually 100%. So wow. uh, you, you may know that, uh, that these coral reefs, they really underpin, uh, for example, the, the food uh, bounty that we get from our oceans. So there's a big difference. And I would like to, to perhaps uh, draw your attention just to the human body temperature. If you have a child whose temperature, temperature would be uh, 38 degrees or so, you wouldn't be too worried. But add another degree to it and you will be worried and uh, you'll take that uh, child to, to the doctor. So, so it's, a, it's a major shift that we're talking about uh, between 1.5 to 2 degrees and even the trajectory we are on currently, which is 2.8 degrees warmer world. Do you think the world pays enough uh, attention to climate change? Things like how all of that exacerbates poverty, um, gender inequality, um, the loss of livelihoods and so on. Yes, it is frustrating to, to observe the, the pace of change. It's not going as fast as, as uh, we need and, and that we indeed wish for. Uh, but at the same time, there's been a, a marked difference in, for example, the price of renewables. Only 10 years ago, we could not imagine a situation where, where uh, uh, renewable energy would be the, the cheapest form of electricity production across most of the world. Just a few years ago even, uh, before COVID, we would not have imagined a situation where electric vehicles are topping the sales statistics of new cars in many, many countries. So there is a change underway. We just want it to be supercharged and uh, that it picks up steam uh, as we go forward. Do you think it's supercharging enough to, to get people more laser focused on the upcoming um, COP28? 
So uh, perhaps in, in regards to COP28, so there's two parts to the climate situation, what we need to do. One is agreeing internationally to take collective action. So all countries together, and that's pretty much what COP28 is. They need to agree on how they deal with uh, climate finance, mitigation, uh, loss and damage, and uh, global goal on adaptation, and, and so forth. So that's what they need to agree to. Yet. Each of those negotiating countries need to also, at the same time, in their countries, implement policies, uh, allocate resources, and take climate action. And this could be just the same areas that I just mentioned on renewable energy, uh, sustainable mobility, shifting agricultural production, uh, forest management, uh, industrial processes, and so forth. But at what point do you think the international community will say, right, we've talked about it enough, we have to have uh, milestones in place, we have to have a fixed timetable to get things done? Yes. Um, having been at, at uh, these, uh, these uh, negotiations uh, quite a, a number of years now, it is interesting how sometimes uh, countries get down into very the, the, like the really details and uh, you can see their kind of negotiation tactics around it. So we are not quite moving as fast as, as uh, we need to. Well, we are not moving as fast as, as we need to. But uh, it's not an easy one uh, getting uh, almost 200 countries to come together and agreeing. Sometimes even if you think in perhaps your personal life, trying to just get uh, uh, the two spouses to, to agree on something can be difficult. And when you add a few children in there as well, it gets very difficult to move things on, on uh, move things forward. There is still much to talk about, the detail to, to, to be ironed out. I wonder though, if the, the state of affairs, it's just got far too big and that maybe that it's just too late to actually make any meaningful change and tackle the climate crisis. So here, uh, Julia, I would like to stress that every fraction of a degree uh, matters. So the further we let the warm the, the earth warm up, the more we will move away from the climate that our societies have been built up around. So we can never give up on trying to solve this issue. So. 1.5 is better than uh, 1.6, 1.6 is better than 1.7 and, and so forth. So this is a battle that we just have to continue with and, and uh, our uh, children, they, they will judge us on, on how we will do in this. Nicholas Hagelberg, thank you very much. Thank you. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Hong Kong and southern China recently saw the highest rainfall in a single hour since records began in 1884. And it's not only been record-breaking rain, but record-breaking heat that's hit the country this summer, when temperatures topped 52 degrees in Xinjiang province in July. Well, with me now to consider what China can do to tackle extreme weather is Dr. Alex Fisher, Program Director of Climate Ambition at the Climate Works Foundation. Um, Dr. Fisher, now China has had a summer of exceptional weather events, extreme heat for weeks and then months of rain, um, and then floods, in, sometimes in places that would never been at risk before. What's going on? Let's think about it. What is happening, happening to us in the world? It's um, the, the level of CO2 is increasing in the atmosphere. As we all know, this works as a sort of blanket. 
So through this blanket, our temperature increase or gets more extreme. Um, the rain, the precipitation from the ocean goes up and we just see more and more extreme weather events. This obviously will continue to raise for the next years to come. I would say, even though it's devastating for each individual and of course for the families who are most affected, but that's the new normal we face today. If we look at the last 10 years, these flood incidents have increased many, many times. Are, are things getting worse in terms of global warming or are we all just getting much better at, at, at monitoring it and understanding the data? That's a good point. Of course, news flowing around the world faster. So everybody can see it and everybody maybe has a feeling about it and is more affected, that's true. But the weather is changing. So if we look further, let's, let's, or let's look back 1980s. That's where actually the bleaching of the coral reefs started. They were the outcries from those affected communities in the Maldives, Australia, and around the world, India, who really um, try to get attention that something is changing. Then through the 90s and the 2000s, the, the level of CO2 emission in the atmosphere kept increasing and still increased today. So what we will see the next years and decades to come is definitely more change and we have to prepare for it. And I obviously we're doing, but it is the way the world is today. Sorry to say that. And why do you think that climate change driven extreme weather is a particular problem for somewhere like China? First of all, China is the largest country in the world if it comes to population. Obviously, a lot of people will be affected. It's a huge country if it comes to geographical expansion and, and uh, the territory. It has all, it has the droughts and the dry weather in the north and cold weather in the north. It has the heating, heat weather in the south. It has um, the coastal line, it's a desert. My, China is like a microcosmos of the world itself. So obviously, we will have many affected areas and China in particular will have um, a strong effect if it comes to the buildings, the stock, because we just built this in the last decades. And this will be, yeah, for some people and some families and real estate owners, a devastating moment where we have to adjust. Uh, yes, there's been death, there's been destruction. People have lost their homes, they, they've been displaced. Uh, we, we've had you know, huge amounts of farmland completely waterlogged and unusable. So food supplies um, have been affected. What do you think the economic pain has been on the country? Yeah, this is of course an important question. I mean, you mentioned also the social pain with the, with the family. So this really comes first, but then the economic pain that is worse to really calculate it and have an, have an overview on the provincial level, on the municipality level, what is happening through climate change and make this clear in the discussion and the communities, how to maybe change policies, how to change building standards, how to change infrastructure. If it comes to road, um, uh, the tarmac on the road has to change so you don't have to repair it so often. So there's a lot of economic and social consequences from weather events. While having said that, it was always there. And you mentioned that earlier. Are we just reporting more? Yes, but also the weather events get more extreme. And I think that's what people have to prepare and have to adjust their, their living standards on municipality level, on provincial level and on national level and the world. 
So let's talk about what China's doing on that national level. Now, we've, we've talked before on the Agenda programme about sponge cities to, to reduce water logging and to prevent floods. What else is being piloted and put in place that, that you think is particularly interesting? Yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, having lived in China for a couple of years, you can see a lot of changes, a lot of policies, adjustment. First of all, on the national political level, they're doing a lot. And um, probably on the national level, they're already on the edge on what is possible, because obviously the next level will be then provincial and community level. And I think there is really some roof, uh, um, space for improvement, actually in all countries, also in Germany. So while the national level is pushing the provincial and the municipality level to take action, to be the leaders, and, and um, then also ensure their population what is the right thing to do. There's a lot of work to be done and, and consumers have to be informed what are the right decisions. Investors have to be informed. They have to take climate change into consideration. This all happens on municipality and uh, provincial level. And um, the individual people which are yeah, sort of responsible for those decisions, they really have to take climate change into the daily decision making. I think there we can improve. But this is, doesn't only count for China, this counts for all of us in the world. So let's talk about climate resilience. Now, at last week's Africa Climate Summit, leaders called for debt relief to help end the climate crisis. Is it as simple as that? Put it that way, um, there's a debt stress. And taking this away obviously will help those communities and those nations, for example, Zambia and other nations where this just happened in a, in a, a concerted effort between the international community, including China, definitely is going to help Zambia and other countries if you take it away. Does it affect climate change measures and policies? Not necessarily, um, except Zambia decides to change the investment structure at large, otherwise it just gives some yeah, relief. So it's a, it's a short-term measure, if you want to call it that way, and um, only will help to adjust to climate change if you yeah, change your investment structure afterwards and have a long-term perspective. Much more important, from my point of view, is the decision from the African nation to push forward on a worldwide carbon market where we align together as a world how to price these environmental externalities like CO2 emissions. And this will, of course, potentially have a long-term effect if the world agrees on a market system where those who polluting pay for those who are affected. And this will change, obviously, then, why the debt relief has a short-term um, relief measure only. Thank you. So you're talking then about this carbon tax regime. You, you think it might make a difference, but how likely is that going to happen? <laughs> That's a very good question, the uh, $66 million question. What can I say? Um, if the 54 leaders in Africa really put their political weight behind this, I think the rest of the world has to move faster. There's a commitment from the world to make it happen. But will it happen in 2050, 2060, 2040? I think that's what we discuss. Why the African Climate Summit, we're pushing for 2030, which is for such a global system, of course, very soon. And if they really pursue that and make it the centerpiece of their political engagement in the climate change 
sphere, I think there's a chance that this could happen much sooner than we all expect. Dr. Alex Fisher, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Still to come here on the agenda, how the European Space Agency is fighting back against wildfires. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Welcome back to the agenda. Technology will have to be key to the world's battle against climate change. And one advance that could already be helping is the European Space Agency's World Fire Atlas. To explain, joining me now is Dr. Clemor Albergel from the European Space Agency. Thanks ever so much both for coming on the agenda. Now tell us about this upgrade um, to the European Space Agency's World Fire Atlas. How does it work and what's changed? Thank you. The series of heat waves we are experiencing this summer across the world is accompanied by a series of wildfires, multiple wildfires from Canada to Turkey, all over the Mediterranean basin. To better understand those extreme events, we need observation. To better understand the variability of the climate system, how it changes, we need observations. Satellite Earth observations, such as those operated by the European Space Agency in partnership with the European Union under the Copernicus program, are particularly useful as they permit to scan our planet. They provide observations with global scale, uniformity, rapid measurement, and continuity. They permit to take the pulse of our planet. The European Space Agency World Fire Atlas provides a very detailed analysis of wildfire across the globe. It offers an insight into the distribution of individual fires taking place at both a national and global scale. Through its interactive dashboards, users can compare the frequency of fires between countries, as well as analyze the evolution of fires taking yeah. place over time. So how accurate is the imagery and, and how is it processed? The World Fire Atlas uses nighttime data from an instrument on board the Copernicus Sentinel-3 satellite that measures thermal infrared radiation to take the temperature of the Earth's land surface. It is used to detect uh, fire. Even if the Atlas cannot pick up all fires because of satellite overpass constraints, its specific spatial resolution and cloud coverage, it statistically represents one month to the other and one year to the other. And the data that you are retrieving now, I mean, it's quite alarming, isn't it? Especially compared to four years ago. Exactly. What we see is that even if period of intense heat can occur within natural weather pattern, we can clearly see that things are accelerating. If there is one kind of extreme event that we can clearly link to climate change, it is worsening heat waves. Heat waves are getting hotter. They are occurring at a higher frequency, increasing the likelihood of having sequential heat waves, and they are doing longer. Human-induced climate change is boosting heat waves. In our data, we can see that heat waves, followed by wildfire, wildfire outbreaks, are accelerating. So you're getting a deeper understanding of, of, of what's happening and what's changing, but I wonder um, how the satellite service maybe can help civilian protection authorities, and in cases of disaster, the, the international humanitarian community, how's it going to help them to respond to emergencies like we're seeing? The Copernicus program, I've mentioned, has its own family of satellites, the Sentinel missions developed by the European Space Agency, but it also has services. 
Copernicus provides a united system through which the vast amount of data provided by the Sentinels are fed into a range of thematic information services designed to benefit the environment. And these services fall into six main categories. One of them is emergency management. And one of the components of the emergency management is the European Forest Fire Information System, EFIS, which provides the most up-to-date information on the current fire season in Europe and in the Mediterranean area. And this includes two days meteorological fire danger maps and forecasts up to eight days ahead, daily updated maps of hotspots and fire perimeters based on satellite-derived data. EFIS provides specific support to the Emergency Response Coordination Center in Brussels, which is fed with near-real-time information along the fire season. And the information it provides, based on satellite Earth observation, is used by civil protection agencies, firefighters, to support decision-making on the ground. So it does sound like this data is quite critical for, for forecasting, but is there anything preventative that, that we can gain from this technology? We clearly need to develop advanced methods of fire forecasting to protect both human lives as well as ecosystem in the face of a changing climate. Current fire danger metrics have significant limitation. Most fire indices are calculated using daily temperatures, relative humidity, wind speed and rainfall to simulate the moisture content of the ground. The lack a connection with real-time information about the amount of fuel, such as dry vegetation or flammable material that is present and susceptible to burning. Data from satellite Earth observations, such as those from the ESA Soil Moisture and Ocean Salinity Missions, most can be used as an indicator of a fuel quantity and moisture. And combining those data with actual fire risk index permits to improve the accuracy and timeliness of fire prediction on a global scale. Dr. Clement Albergel, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up on a future agenda, the rise of the robot. Is the world ready for an entirely automated future? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.